0: The French writer Marcel Proust was fascinated by life, but he was even more interested in how we perceive life. In 1908, when he was in his late 30s, he began to write a novel that explored themes of memory, identity, and the passage of time. This project consumed him until he died in 1922. By the end, his novel came out at more than 1.2 million words. That's three to 4,000 pages, depending on the edition. Much of the work was inspired directly from his life, sometimes memories of the past, and sometimes experiences that were unfolding in the present. In English, the novel goes by the title In Search of Lost Time. Although it does have a plot of sorts, this book is more about ideas and less about a storyline.
1: What really appeals to me is that is that he explores the gap between what people think they're doing and what they're actually doing. That's really what, what, uh, what I love best.
0: Before he started writing his novel, Proust seemed to have a fleeting attention span. There were so many things that caught his fancy. But as it turns out, he was doing valuable research for his masterpiece.
2: So Proust writes this letter, he says, "You know, I'm working on a study of the nobility. I'm working on a Parisian novel. I'm working on an essay on Sainte-Beuve and Flaubert. I'm working on an essay on women. I'm working on an essay on pederasty that I know will be hard to publish. I'm working on a study of stained glass windows. I'm working on a study of tombstones, and I'm working on a study of the novel. <laughs> and, and so that letter is kind of you know, amazing because on the, you can imagine somebody who knew Proust at that time getting that letter and saying, yeah, typical Proust, he's working on a lot of things. I bet you he'll never finish any of them or something like that. And then now you read that letter and you think, "Wow, well, so actually, um, you know, that's the novel."
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. For this episode, I sat down with professors Michael Lucy and Elizabeth Ladenson to discuss Marcel Proust in Search of Lost Time. Could you provide for listeners a, a bit of a biographical
2: sketch of who he was and? in what age he emerged he was born uh, in 1871 um at a very difficult moment in french history um the the french had just um lost the franco-prussian war there had been a revolution in paris an attempt to establish a, a more uh, egalitarian socialist government in paris that had been ruthlessly suppressed by the forces of order um tens of thousands of people executed and so there was some concern at the time that he was born for um, his viability because there was a, there were food shortages, everything that was going on was quite dangerous. Um, but he did uh, survive that early period. He um, only then later in life at the age of 10 to start suffering very severe asthma attacks. So um, and there wasn't good treatment for asthma during his lifetime. And so there was a way in which he lived, you could say, with the worry of death um, his whole life in interesting ways. He also had an intriguing family structure. His father, Adrian Proust was, um, he, he was a very prominent physician and a public health expert. Uh, and, but he came from quite modest backgrounds, uh, traditional French Catholic backgrounds from, uh, I think his father was a grocer. But his mother, uh, Jeanne, was uh, from a Jewish family and a quite wealthy family, a family of stockbrokers. Um, so it was a, a strange mix that you could say, even though it was, um, um, I I think you could say it was a close and relatively happy family. He had a brother as well, Robert, who would go on to follow in his father's footsteps and be a doctor. But Proust, Marcel Proust was the kind of, the sickly one in a certain way extremely intelligent, um, uh, maybe a little bit, um, uh, not always as focused as he might be on achievement or something like that. Quite interested in friendships, quite interested in social relations. Um, it became, uh, quite clear in his childhood that his most intense sentimental attachments, attachments were to other boys. And this would develop into, um, love affairs, I guess you would say. Uh, And it's an interesting, it's always been an interesting question to what extent people did or didn't know that that Proust's sexual attractions were to other men. Um, I think that the the standard line nowadays is, it was impossible if you were close to Proust, not to know that, even though he would pretend um, that it was a secret or that it was not the case.
0: At a young age, Proust enrolled in the Lycée Condorcet in Paris and fell in love with literature. After graduating, he knew he wanted to pursue a career as a writer.
1: Imagining that you're going to grow up and be a writer, a great writer, is like imagining that you're going to grow up and be LeBron James or something um, in, in our own culture or, you know, either LeBron James or Lady Gaga, you know, depending. I mean, it's like they're rock stars. Literature is extremely important, and so I think uh, it seems pretty clear that he always wanted to be a writer. He spent a lot of time reading. He was very literary. That was a normal thing to be in the circles in which he grew up.
0: Some of Proust's friends from school introduced him to the aristocratic circles of high society Paris. This was the time of the Belle Epoque. The Franco-Prussian War was over, peace and prosperity had returned, and the upper classes sought out and cultivated joy, optimism, and above all, beauty.
2: It was a moment of aesthetic ferment and Proust was uh, capable of, I think from his very earliest childhood, he could lose himself in the fascination of aesthetic experience quite easily. So that was another important part of his makeup. Um, There are stories of him, you know, noticing a flower and saying to the person he was with, just walk on and leave me here for a little while. And he could just gaze um, at these flowers that had fascinated him for an extremely long period of time. He would just be, he could let himself be caught up in an experience like that. Um, that so, And certainly Proust was fascinated by painting, by music, by architecture, by dance, by all of the various art forms that were going on around him. His fascination for the, um, the A-list social world was something a little bit different. That, um, I mean, it, it's interesting with the Franco-Prussian War, with the commune, um, with the establishment of the Third Republic, there was a way in which the world was changing such that that world of the aristocracy seemed um, both extremely present and um, extremely um, I mean, out of date or something like that. So there, there's something about transformation going on in the world around you that was also, I think, really interesting for Proust. I think on the one hand, he was just fascinated by the glamour of those people, but he was also somehow intrigued by the fact that this was something that had existed for a long time, but that it wasn't clear that its existence made sense any longer.
0: Proust indulged his curiosity of both the aristocratic social world and the natural world, and pondered the meaning of both in time and space. But in between parties and nature walks, Proust continued writing.
1: He published uh, a volume of weird short stories, um, in the mid eighteen ninety, in like eighteen ninety six or something, and uh, he he translated Ruskin. Um, and then, uh, from the, in the late 1890s, um, he started to write a novel that he n- didn't give a title to, um, but that was a later titled Jean Sante. It wasn't published during his lifetime. He also started writing essays denouncing the critic Saint Beuve. So he was writing all this stuff um, that didn't get published, most of it, um, in the late 1890s and, and early 1900s. Um that you can see that that what eventually becomes the novel is kind of brewing in there. And uh, a really important thing that happened in um, in the very early years of the 20th century in 1903, I, his father dies and in 1905 his mother dies. He was a real mama's boy. He was um, really, really devastated by his mother's death. Um, he also, I mean, he inherited a bunch of money, um, and furniture and stuff. Um, and so, uh, and there was no one left to try to get him to do some job, um, to, to, to have a career. Um, and so he, he started, um, in the years after his mother died, he started really working on then what turned into, um, in search of lost time. And, um, it's in 1908, so three years after his mother dies, 1908, it sort of starts to come together.
2: How is it that you get to the age of 40, having published stuff that some people like and read, but that nobody thinks is particularly remarkable? Um, and then just, you know, everybody everybody's pretty clear on the fact that something happened to him in 1908, where he, he just, uh, enough things had changed or he had, he had had enough experience, he had tried enough different kinds of writing that he he kind of latched onto something that became the project that then obsessed him for the for the rest of his life. So it seems like early in 1908 he started the pieces started to fall into place. Late in 1908, he started writing and then he just never stopped um, un, until he died in, in 1922.
0: Proust's obsessive commitment to writing in search of lost time was rather uncharacteristic.
2: People thought of him as you know, distracted and unable to apply himself and um, too fascinated, too easily caught up in uh, ephemeral experiences. And so um, the idea that he would write a long form book, it just didn't really seem to be in the cards. And, and then how he actually conceived of the novel itself is also interesting, fascinating, hard to figure out. There's this letter that's become famous that he wrote towards the beginning of 1908 <clears throat> to a friend. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm working on a bunch of different things. This would be the kind of thing if you're a, a professor and a student comes to your office and you're trying to work with them on a project and they have, well, I have about 12 ideas and, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm sure something good's going to come out of them. And the professor is going to get a little worried because you would really prefer that the person just had, you know, two or three ideas and could really focus. But you could take each item on that list and think about it and think, what did that become? How did that become a piece of this amazing novel um, that he ended up writing?
0: So the book itself, let's start with the title.
2: Yeah, so the title in French is A La Recherche du Temps Perdu. And um, interestingly, the first English translation just decided not to give it a literal translation, but to take a line from Shakespeare, Remembrance of Things Past, and give that to the um, to the novel. Um, I guess what I would say is always dangerous to do things like that when you're a translator. Um, Nowadays, what most of the English translations that are out there to call it In Search of Lost Time, which, is, which seems like a more direct translation of the title. It's interesting though, that, that word in French, recherche, right, um, because it means, it, it does mean search, it can mean search, so In Search of Lost Time, but recherche also means research. Um, and there are various points in the novel where the narrator will talk about mes recherches, like the research that I'm doing. Something like that. So there's something about that word in the title that's worth thinking about. You so you could think, oh, researches about the passage of time, or something like that. You could think of it as a as a kind of a scientific investigation in a certain way, of certain of process or of change, or of parts of reality that are immaterial, something like that. Um and that the novel that Proust was Struggling to create was one, he was struggling to craft an instrument that would be adequate to the kinds of research that he just ended up thinking of his life as being. That he kind of maybe thought of himself as being a kind of a novelist, as a kind of scientist who was studying things about the world and wanted to create an instrument in the novel that could actually show the results of that research to the reader.
1: He started out writing the beginning and the end, and he always emphasized that he wanted it to be really, um, like architectural, like it wasn't just random. He, he was very invested in saying, you think this is just random reminiscences. This is also why people don't like the title remembrance of things best. Cause it sounds like, you know, grandma blathering by the fire. Um, and, uh, whereas, you know, in search of lost time, Indiana Jones. Okay. So the, the story itself, uh, what is the
0: story about roughly?
2: So it starts out with this person. you know, it has a very famous sentence uh, first sentence. Uh, for a long time, I went to bed early. It's very challenging to translate that sentence uh, into English too, because the tense is a little bit unusual in the French. Um, but right there right away, the sentence uh, um, poses us some problems because who is this person? Uh, what At what point in their life? Did they have a hard time? Did they always go to bed early and have a hard time falling asleep? And then there's this long description of remembering things while they were trying to fall asleep. And slowly the novel seems to fall into the memory of childhood. Uh, and so the beginning of the book ends up seeming to be uh, about the the project of remembering a childhood. And uh, so then one of the important, one of the things that Proust is famous for is, of course, the Madeleine scene, which is, so the the novel goes on, trying to remember childhood for a few pages, or for a certain number of pages. And then it describes a scene where, at some point, much later in life, this person who is narrating the novel to us is given a cup of tea, dips a, a Madeleine into it, and the flavor, the combined flavor of the tea and the Madeleine causes something to happen inside him, and suddenly a whole new vision of his childhood, a much fuller vision of his childhood, reemerges involuntarily. And so um, in the early volume of the novel, this distinction gets established between involuntary memory, which is full, rich, and voluntary memory, which tends to be quite limited. And in some ways, because that happens right at the beginning of the novel and is so striking, uh, that's become Proust in a certain way for a lot of people, right? Proust and Madeleine and involuntary memory and how when we smell something, suddenly memories come flooding back to us. When we taste something, memories come flooding back to us. Um, we can maybe see something that reminds us of something we saw much earlier and the memory comes flooding back to us. So there's a way in which the, the you know, intriguing phenomenon of involuntary memory became for many people central to the novel. Um, but it's just really one part of the novel.
0: For Proust, this novel is also about the passage of time.
2: It's about how you could see an event that would happen in the world. And if you really looked at the event, you would see that the event somehow contained within it or reflected or pointed to or indexed time passing and various social processes that were taking place such that this particular event would take, would happen. So the event itself would become somehow, uh, a marker of invisible social processes, something like that. Um, and that, that sense that the, that the novel is really about training us to be able to see what is there in reality, but is not material. To see process, to see change, to see the beauty of the un, uh, of the invisible in a certain way, um, that seems to me to be one of the really key things in you know in Proust's investigations or his researches.
0: So he 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 eats that Madeleine and tea, and memories flood back. And then is the rest of it recounting more memories as they unfold?
2: Yes and no, because the next section of the novel, which is called Swan in Love. It's been made into a movie suddenly tells the story of a time in one of the main characters lives swans before the narrator was born so that's kind of disruptive of this idea that it's supposed to be somebody's memories right the narrator came into a world that existed and the world will go on existing uh, after the narrator as well um so slowly we we meet a cast of characters. Uh, so Swan, his wife Odette, and their daughter Gilberte, um, and their friend a strange Baron, the Baron de Charlus. Uh, so those characters all occur in the first volume, and then gradually the 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 world of characters expands, and the narrator slowly moves out into um, in, uh, into a. Uh, different realms of the social world, um, becomes friends with Gilbert Swan, gets to know Swan in a different, in a a new way, because Swan was a friend of his family during his childhood, but he gets to know him in a new way later on. So it brings up the question, what does it mean to know somebody? Uh, What what does it mean to know a person? Uh, So one of the things that that the narrator says early on, like, well, when we look at a person, we don't actually see the person really. We're, there's something that we see which is our ideas about the person, right? Um, and, and this then becomes a real interesting, big question in the novel: what is what are the biases in the way that we look at things? Um, so, for instance, he has this really interesting passage, about a third of the way through the novel, where he says it's not only the physical world that differs from the particular way that we see it. All reality is equally dissimilar from what we believe ourselves to be directly perceiving. So there's he's interested in reality versus the perception of reality. Because what we perceive, we compose with the help of ideas that do not reveal themselves, but are functioning all the same. So he's interested in he's interested in like a a conceptual framework through which a given person would view the world and therefore see the world in a certain way. And then he he says this really interesting sci-fi thing. He says, just as trees, the sun and the sky would not be the way we see them if they were perceived by creatures with eyes differently constituted from our own or with organs other than eyes, which fulfilled the same purpose and conveyed equivalents of trees and sky and sun, but not visual ones. Kind of an amazing, passage, which says, of course, we only see the world um, from our own point of view. We only can see what in or hear in the world, what our sense perceptions, our organs of sense perception allow us to see. And even beyond that, we have concepts or ideas or structures that determine how we'll process what sense perception we receive. And everybody will be doing that differently. So people will see the same thing, but see it differently. Right? So he's fascinated again by these invisible parts of reality, which are say the ideas that act on the way that you see the world.
0: Makes me think a little bit of my very poor understanding of Kantian philosophy, which is trying to figure out like, you know, we, we are mediated with reality through our brains. And so we know that it's not real, but we sort of have to trust it because that's all we have, and it is trustworthy.
2: yes, I mean, I think he was very well educated and very well read so um, uh, certainly people find references to many people in the philosophical canon throughout his work. That's another uh common so- uh, common way that people point to the richness of this particular of this particular novel um, I mean I think that Maybe, I mean, this is maybe tied to the form of the novel that, that, that there's a narrator who's narrating um, his own past, but in a very supple way so that as you're reading any particular sentence in the novel, the um, at any given moment in the sentence, it might seem to be narrated by the hero who's living what's being narrated or by by the narrator 10 years later or by the narrator 20 years later or, or by several that there might be several points in the narrator's life in the timeline of the narrator's life that are all somehow put together in the same sentence so that you're all always seeing the narrator stepping back from himself and, uh, and wondering what are the ideas that I have that are structuring the things that I say and the things that I do. So the narrator is very interested in stepping back and taking a critical distance not only from the world, but from himself in a certain way.
0: So after Swan, uh, the story of Swan, what comes next?
2: So yeah, this is where it now now it starts to get really interesting because um, in in terms of the timeline of the publication of the novel, the first volume was published in 1913. And then there was a big delay um, because World War I happened. And so the second volume would only appear in 1919. So after the war, which meant that things changed for Proust in the novel. As we read from beginning to end of the novel, we're not reading from the earliest stuff Proust wrote to the latest stuff Proust wrote. Um, Because there's stuff at the very end of the novel that he wrote very early on. There's stuff already in the second volume that he wrote very late. The latest things, the things, apparently he was dictating things on his deathbed, so those would be in volume six. Not in volume five, not in volume six or volume seven. So the compositional time of the novel, you could say, is very complicated.
0: The story continues to explore themes like memory, homosexuality, art, aesthetic experience, and anxiety. And because so much of the novel was based on Proust's own life, readers enjoyed speculating on the real-life inspirations
2: after his novel started being published and people realized that he was drawing on his experience of the world to write the novel then people would always be saying well who's 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 your model for so and so who's your model for so and so who's your model for so and so and he would say various things at at various points in time like you know there's there's no one model there's you know 10 models there's this there's, uh, there's there's this and that this and that all these people get coalesced together to become these characters but another thing that you could say is that he himself is there in the novel in many different characters, right? That it's not just the narrator, that is him. He is, or, or you could say, he objectifies bits of his subjective experience, thinks about them, and then puts them into the novel into quite different characters. So sometimes he might be a fellow named Le Grandin. Sometimes a little bit of him would be in Charlus, or a lot of him would be in Charlus. This is a way in which you would say uh, it's not, you know, what people would call. Uh, a coded novel, it's not an autobiographical novel, um, because of this process of watching people's subjective experience, objectifying it, thinking about what it means, and then making that meaning apparent by the way that you put it into this or that character in the novel.
0: In Search of Lost Time is less about plot and more about Proust's philosophical observations on the world and the nature of time. And the way Proust wrote the book reflects that central theme.
2: It's fascinating, just in that um, it is importantly unfinished, right? Which means, in some ways, that you can never finish reading it. Um, I think that there's a way in which, since you know, most people think that it exists in the seven volumes that you can buy. um, Most people and so most people think of it as a as a you know you know a a long novel, three thousand to four thousand pages, depending on how it's typeset um, in seven volumes. Um, Then. Though, as you get to know it more, then you begin to realize that it's more complicated that Proust died before the final volumes were published, that it's very unclear had he lived what those final volumes would have looked like. Um, there's no question about the, th- the um, fact that he wrote all the way to the end and and he, he, he wrote the word end, the end, at the end of it, the words, the end, or the word in French, fin, at the end of it. Um, but there's also no question that the way that he worked, as the different volumes were moving through the publication process, he, the, the novel he couldn't help but let the novel grow.
0: Proust didn't write the novel from start to finish. He had the beginning and end more or less worked out from the start. But as he fleshed out each volume, they tended to grow.
1: His method was uh, just adding. He just, and he literally, like, he would glue, uh, like, he wrote in notebooks, and uh, the Post-it note people would have uh, made a fortune on him because he, he would glue, he would, like, write huge scrolls and then, like, glue them into the pertinent place.
0: In addition to being an unfinished book, In Search of Lost Time is also a book written during a hugely important period of French history. Proust began writing the novel in 1908, and published the first volume in 1913.
2: So then uh, World War I happened, and the end of the novel was, you could say, pushed further forward in time by events that he couldn't have known were going to take place when it happened. But what we could say is that he's, he, he's interested in the trajectories of certain people across time, how you might end up, how you might, in particular this person who starts out as Madame Verdurin, and then across a series of marriages, becomes a a, a, a princess in the end. Um, what does that kind of a trajectory mean, right? Or when um, uh, that uh, that thing that he said at, in his interview at the beginning, when he wanted a, a simple marriage at the end uh, to mean something in particular about time, and so then we we meet, you know, children and grandchildren who who get married and bring together any number of complicated family lines and the narrator has all the information to know all of the different storylines that enabled this to happen but you know maybe people in the world don't have those storylines so it's it's a real question about what um what forms of invisible meaning are there in the world that as we get pushed through time You know, what are those invisible things that are pushing us through time in certain ways and how, how would you go about rendering them visible, right? Just that sense of trying to understand the, the contours of any given event, how it came to be and in its fragility, what forms of meaning it might have or what, how it it might be, um, vehicleing forms of meaning that are about to disappear All of these kinds of questions seem to be what the novel ends up being about.
0: Let's move now to the afterlife of the book. Um, I'd love to know how people thought about the books when they first kind of came out in France and how they were received in other literary capitals in the the world. Um, But then move on to how to think about its lasting influence on culture.
2: Absolutely. It's a huge challenge to read the novel because it's so long, but also because he writes a particular kind of prose. He writes, in general, quite long sentences, so it requires patience. Um, uh, I I think very early in the novel, in the novel's history, a, a British critic had this nice sentence that was something like, people tend to get impatient reading Proust because they believe that the novel should be moving forward, but that's not what it's about or something like that. You know That sense that if, you, if you're thinking, if you're reading the novel because you want it to be moving forward, you're, you're reading the wrong novel if you're reading Proust. Um, I mean, so there are so many uh, versions of Proust that have come and gone and that come back. Um, so people thought about it initially as maybe a deeply about subjective experience as opposed to being about the objectification of subjective experience. And so somebody like Sartre, when he would be writing novels, would say, you know, we need to not be so caught up in this inner world. We need to, you know, be, be more willing to be on the outside. And now that we're writing novels that are more concerned with outside social things, we're done with Proust. Uh, so that was um, untrue, you could say. Uh, I think the involuntary memory thing keeps going forward in time. Uh, I think that at a certain point, the presence of so many queer characters in this novel really became important to a lot of people. I guess throughout its reception, the, um, there has been, a, a, an, in, there, you could say, a queer interest or a, an interest of, of, of um, queer people in a novel that had so many queer characters in it and how to deal with it, precisely since it seems sometimes to make fun of those characters, but at the same time to be really, um, uh, interested in presenting them in a very capacious way. So just understanding its importance in sexual culture has been, it is a big part of the novel's ongoing reception, you could say.
0: Do you see its influence in other books that became well-known or in other art forms?
2: Some people saw right away, wow, this is amazing. Virginia Woolf is a great example of that. Um, uh, She was such a different kind of writer from Proust and yet interested um, in some of the same things. So interested in what's imminent, you could say, interested in what's not quite there on the surface, but the, if you stay with the surface for long enough and you look at it from the right angle and you have the right concepts and ideas that are that are guiding your vision, then what's imminent behind something can slowly emerge. And she develops a whole different set of techniques for studying something like that. But um, I find it really interesting to say to read Proust and Virginia Woolf side by side, and and to uh, to see that there. I mean that 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 her her awareness of him is somehow present in the kinds of things that she tries to make a novel do.
0: In Search of Lost Time is Proust's love letter to the world, the world as perceived through his own history, his own eyes. He was aware that there was no possibility of a single objective perception of life, but rather than a problem. He saw that unavoidable subjectivity as the foundation of life's significance and beauty. In volume six of the novel, Proust writes, the reason why life may be judged to be trivial, although at certain moments it seems to us so beautiful, is that we form our judgment ordinarily, not on the evidence of life itself, but of those quite different images which preserve nothing of life, and therefore we judge it despairingly.
1: He's kind of uh, you know in a way ripping the band-aid off um you know he's doing it very nicely but uh yeah the world is really uh, yeah the world is not a boring place (laughs) i think that's what great art shows us is that the world is not what it's what we're told it's supposed to be and it's definitely not a boring place
2: overall of all of the things the thing the the sense of the ambition for the novel itself as an instrument that can help us explore something. I mean, to me, that's the, that's the, the, the important thing to hold on to. That, so if you go back to that word in the title, the recherche, the investigations, like that, that the novel is an instrument that you can use to investigate something that might otherwise be beyond your understanding. To me, that's the, that's the part of Proust that I hope would, would, would live the longest.
0: Rit Large is produced by Jack Pombrion and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fair Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of Lithub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.